Look, Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. That's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. But I thought a king can do whatever he wants. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories, ideas, and experiences as we talk about issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Today I'm with my good friend, Andre Henry, and Andre is a artist, he's a writer, a theologian, um, he is the, the founder and the, the brains behind the Hope and Hard Pills anti-racism movement, one of the most brilliant people I know, and I'm just really, really excited to have him on the podcast. Andre, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Was that was that enough of a build up? I feel like I feel like I left some things out, but I just didn't yeah. want to I didn't want to spend the first 45 no, minutes I'm, of the podcast talking about what you do. <laughs> you know, I, I almost interrupted you. I was like, I thought you wasn't gonna introduce me. Like, but I didn't wanna I didn't want you to feel like I wasn't taking this seriously. <laughs> this is serious business, man. This is serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've known each other for a long time now. And so we met in Atlanta. We were at the same at the yeah. same church, Assembly of God Church in Decatur, where it's greater. Yeah. And um, so do you remember <laughs> <laughs> you remember we were um, I was leading worship and because I didn't play an instrument, yeah. we needed someone to play. So you played and, and I, I, all I really remember was us doing Friend of God. And I remember how large the the friggin' drum set was that the dude played behind us. It was it was massive. It was oh, a, yeah. it was a percussion section and a drum set at the same time. That's that's what I remember from meeting you. Um, oh, word! Yeah, um, was that that was in the main service then, right? Yeah, we that were was on the main. We were in the, the main, main sanctuary. We were in the main sanctuary, main service, and and I I was kind of auditioning for the job. Like I really wanted to be the worship leader. But I was always held back because I didn't play. I didn't play an instrument. Although, long story short, ultimately they wound up asking me to be the worship leader anyway, even though I didn't play an instrument. So you know, I guess oh, I nice. guess it worked out. Then I guess that fr- I guess that friend of God really did do the trick <laughs> that, that that Sunday. <laughs> they were like, "Well, we have to hire him. He's clearly Jesus. We, we have to. <laughs> he has to. He's friends with Jesus. We gotta have this guy. He's a friend of God." <laughs> so so after after that i kind of lost track of where you were like Mm -hmm. i knew you'd gone away to school i think you were like 18 or 19 at that point but i think you went away to school and the next time that i picked up on what was going on with you was when you had the band in new york so okay for me for me and for the people listening to this could you just sort of Talk about like what happened between Atlanta and New York City. Yeah. 
Well, uh, the short of it is um, I was raptured. (laughs) 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 Uh, I I didn't just disappear. I was in between Atlanta and New York. Okay, so then I was at Southeastern University at the time for uh, about four and a half years. I, you know, I went to Bible college because I thought that that's what, I thought that all Christians were supposed to, like, study the Bible. Mm. Um, Okay. And so I I was like, okay, well, I want to know more about the Bible. So I went to Bible college. And um, while I was there, I was, you know, working on music and all of that and felt like felt like my path was going to be in ministry, um, like probably full time ministry, probably become a pastor somewhere. Hmm. And then by the end of it, by the end of it, I determined that I didn't need to be a pastor to do ministry. So I was going to be I was going to pursue my my first love, my first passion, which was music. And I had to make some decisions about where to do that. And um, so I thought about going back to Atlanta. I thought about uh, going to Nashville. Um, and I thought about New York and Los Angeles. You know, th- that was my short list. I had a couple others, but I had a okay. few others. And I ended up going to New York to go and like be the next TV wonder. And that's how I'm going to do ministry. <laughs> Um, but I visited New York. I visited New York to lead the music at this service one Sunday. And I just decided not to go back home. So I went on a weekend trip and I stayed there for seven years. (laughs) So you went to New York to sing at one church. Yes. And then wound up saying, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm staying here. Send my stuff. Um, I actually didn't even have my stuff sent to me. I just kept my two bags. <laughs> I just had, I had two bags. I was like, you know, um, and I just acquired things from there. <laughs> acquired new things. Oh, wow. Okay. So now please tell everyone the name of the band you started, because I, when you got to New York, I was traveling with a band. And one of the the guys traveling with us, we were, I think we were both on social media together and we saw your band and he said, that's the most amazing name of a band I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) It it actually, it actually made me feel less creative, you know, because I was just Corey Evan. (laughs) Corey Evan is a lot easier to remember than Dre and the Progressive Soul Orchestra. Um, You know, but still. But that was my dream. I really did want to have like a full orchestra, like just playing all this, you know, soulful music that that drew from a lot of different influences, right? That would incorporate jazz and salsa and rock and pop and R&B. And so we had a big band. Like (laughs) there were like a lot of us, I think when we were in Florida, cause we actually, we started, I, these were all friends from college. So um, okay. we started playing together in Florida and we had horns and everything. So I think we had maybe 10 or 13 people for this one show that we did there. Dang. I mean, but you know, that's it is, it is what it is when you're in college, y'all really don't have anything to do and you're not working. Exactly. And so, so I mean, you can pull together, you know, 10, 13 people who all play instruments when 
you all really don't have anything else to do aside from homework. <laughs> right, right. So, so you're in New York, you're there in New York and you've got the progressive soul orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you tell the story a couple of different times. It, it sounds, it seems like New York was where things started to turn for you in terms of becoming the activist that you are today, like, or, or at least, at least there were some sort of building blocks laid with some experiences you had with police or with, with, with racism, things like that. Could you talk about some of that? Yeah. See, here, here's the thing. When you grow up in the South, Corey, did you grow up in the South? You're from Georgia, right? Well, uh, I mean, I could argue that I'm still growing up. I've grown up everywhere I'm, I've lived, <laughs> but I was born in Chicago and I lived in the Midwest. Most of my time was in the Midwest. So I was like nine that, years in, in the South. Okay. Well, I, that's, that's so crazy. I was born in Skokie, Illinois, by the way. This is not oh, what I'm born in Skokie. And then lived most of my life in Atlanta. Okay. So, but um, growing up in the South, there, let me, let me, let me, let me restate this. Let me just go. So, I was always aware of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of my biggest heroes when I was young were people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one of my favorite songs growing up was Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley. Um, my father was a reggae musician. He's a black radical thinker, right? And um, not a Christian, never been a Christian. And so I grew up, with a relationship to racial justice and faith in the same way that some people do when, you know, you learn about dinosaurs as a young person. Like when you learn about dinosaurs as a young Christian and you, then you go to college and you realize that some people actually have problems with evolution and have problems with, you know, well, where were the dinosaurs in the Bible? But you always, you were always just drawing like Ankylosaurus and Brontosaurus and all that stuff. You're like, I don't see what the problem is. So that, that was me. Like I didn't see the issue or any kind of like discrepancy there, but my, my conception of what racism was, was very different. I thought that I thought like many white people do about racism that, you know, there might be some Ku Klux Klan members out there, you know, um, that, you know, that are still burning crosses in the woods, but you know, they certainly aren't, you know, running for president or something like that. No, you know, surely not, not. You know, they're not bank tellers and school teachers and they're not writing laws anymore. So I didn't think that. I go back there to my childhood to answer this question to say that I, my understanding of racism grew in a way in New York that it wasn't able to in the South. Because growing up in the South, white people police the things that black people think and say. Mm. And they don't think that they're doing that. But I remember um, I I had a Bob Marley hat that I bought in Jamaica because my family used to go back to Jamaica every other year. That's where my family's from. And I bought this Bob Marley hat and I was wearing it at one of our youth camps in Georgia. And someone asked me, who is Bob Marley? And one of the leaders, the camp counselors, interjected, first off, rude, um, (laughs) (laughs) interjected and said he's a ganja smoking something or other, right? Wow, wow. As though that's the only thing to know about Bob Marley. Two things. As though, first off, weed or marijuana is like a 
like an anatomically diabolical substance, right? <laughs> like, you right. know, as exactly. it, it is exactly. uh, agricultural evil, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? So right. first, right. And secondly, as though the only thing to know about Marley is that he smoked marijuana. Now, um, so that that's one that's one way I think that. I could say that there is someone policing the conversation, right? That is someone deciding that those are the boundaries to talk about this. And I remember as a young person, anytime that I would say that something was racist or I felt like I'd experienced racism, that there would always be someone telling me, no, that that's not what you experienced. And that's not what that is. And don't play the race card and the name calling of like race bait and all this kind of stuff. And so you learn as a person growing up in that context, especially as a kid, where the boundaries are, right? It's, it's the same as being a child and wandering into the kitchen and trying to pick, play with the knives or put your hand on the stove, right? Somebody says, no, that those are the mm-hmm. boundaries. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. But when I moved to New York, there wasn't that kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to identify that not only was I not delusional and not crazy, but the things that I was experiencing were real. And two, the fact that so many other Black people also had similar experiences was not some kind of coincidence or happen, happenstance, but that mm. there actually was an order to society. The way that our society is arranged yields certain social outcomes. And um, I was able to. Mm acknowledge and realize and embrace that without the policing of white people to tell me, no, you're not allowed to do that. Wow. Yeah. And I really love how you talk about the change of, of culture and how in New York you weren't, it didn't sound like you were saying there weren't racist people or racist experiences in New York, Mm -hmm. just that the culture allowed for people of color mm-hmm. to express their feelings about race without it being white splained or somehow truncated to something that's less harmful than racism. Yeah, well, you know, also the thing is like, even beyond just like what people of color feel about racism, there's also just the culture is different in the South and in certain parts of the, parts of the West where the givens of how society, like the popular ideas of how our society is arranged are just different. You know, in, in New York, um, people generally are not in denial about the existence of racism as a system. Now they might be in denial that they are participants in that system and that they're complicit in that system and that they're no better than their Southern neighbors. (laughs) Right. But they'll admit that it's there. Right. In the South, you're it's it's the it's a taboo. You're not supposed to even think that that is a reality. Mm-hmm. So, I think just the the idea, like the dominant story in these different areas, are just very different. And so, being in New York, that was the first time I heard the term systemic racism. You know, mm-hmm. I'd experienced it, <laughs> right? Uh, but but I'd never heard someone give language to it. You know, or even so, that's the first time it was named. That's that that yeah. it was that it, systemic racism was given a, a handle that you could carry 
yeah, what you were feeling with. It's like when you're like learning an instrument without a teacher mm-hmm. and you can hear the notes so you can play a scale. But then like somebody starts talking about music theory with you and tells you, yeah, the thing that you just did, like that's a major scale, but that's a minor mm-hmm. scale. That's a mm-hmm. chord. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was like that. You know, it's like I'm now. I was able to put language to different things. No, even the idea of, of whiteness and white privilege was something that I really didn't have language for until I was in New York. And the funny thing is, I I got this language actually at church. Mm. Uh, there was an event about whiteness at my church that three black women in my church put together. And there was this whole discussion amongst Black people. Um, I mean, the crowd was mixed, but there were a lot of Black people there talking about whiteness, systemic racism, and how to navigate it. And it was way above my head, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I understood a lot of the conversation, but there was a lot of the conversation that that I just didn't feel like I could participate in because I was just learning the language. Yeah, man. So it's like it's like you were getting an education in New York that there was no way you were going to get at Southeastern University. Right. Of course. Like there were there two there two different events. Like one happened at Southeastern and one happened in in New York that I think illustrates this. Right. So okay. one time at Southeastern, I was walking my bike across campus and um, it was late. So I was in my room and I realized that the that my bike was on the other side of campus and I need to go get it. So I, you know, naturally I just got up, put on some sweats and ran out the room. Now, I forgot my ID in the room. But you know, I'm on campus, it's a gated community, and to get in you have to have an ID. So <laughs> so the fact that I'm on campus would suggest that I have one. So anyway, all that context. I find my bike, I'm walking it back across campus, and a security guard stops me. And he is like, is that your bike? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, you don't look like you're a student here. What? (laughs) Like, well, you know, what does a student look like? You know what I mean? Seriously. You know, I mean, to this day, I'm in my mid 30s and people never believe me when I say so. So, I mean, I know I look young enough to be a student, (laughs) you know, <laughs> you don't look you know, like a student here. Um, well, was it was there like a uniform you know that like all the students wore? No, there's no uniform. There's no tattoos. <laughs> there's no brands. No, like, there's, there's nothing. There's not a secret handshake. Oh or, my gosh! You know, wow. Uh, there's not. There's nothing. To, there's nothing to differentiate this. So if I had said at if I had said at Southeastern, I was racially profiled that night there would be a bunch of people that are saying like, well, why do you have to take it there? Why does everything have mm-hmm. to be about race? No, it, no, it's not. You know, that could happen to me. You mm-hmm. might've done that to anybody, blah, blah, blah. You know, or maybe you should have put changed out of a white t-shirt and put on a different color since, you know, a lot of gangsters wear white t-shirts. Right, I don't know what to say. Yeah. But you get, exactly. In New York, I was looking for an apartment. I spoke to the landlord on Craigslist. He sounded very excited to hear from me. And the apartment was in Harlem. And he said, I don't meet many decent people Mm. around here. And then he said, maybe we could even be friends. Now, when I got up there, the only thing that changed was that he saw me and he refused to rent me the apartment. Yeah. When I talk about that experience in New York, 
people say, oh my gosh, <laughs> that that was totally racist, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, well, because even him saying, I don't meet many good people in Harlem could have some racial undertones as well, because Harlem's, Harlem's a pretty exactly. predominantly black part of New York. Yeah. Yeah, and historically black, you know? So the fact that someone would whisper to me on the phone because he did not realize I was black, that he doesn't meet many quote-unquote decent people, is totally a microaggression, right? Right. You know? right. Now, what I was learning in New York was that that experience at that apartment, which is not the only story I could tell, but that experience was actually common among Black people. Like, there are studies that show that when Black people are looking for places to live, they are shown less properties than their white counterparts. They're not even shown as many places as their white counterparts. So... If the man had been able to discern that I was black while on the phone, who knows if I would have even seen it. Right, exactly. <laughs> if your name was like um, was like Lamar or Tyrone. Right. Instead of Andre. Wow. Right, exactly. So I was learning, you know, in New York, I was learning that these things are part of a social pattern. They're part of the way that things are arranged. And there was no one around me really in denial about it. I mean, the majority of people were, were not in denial about it. Man, I, w- I would love to stay in New York and keep having, because I have so many questions about New York. We're going to have to have you back to just talk about this New York chapter, because as interesting, <laughs> interesting as that is, I want to fast forward to you being in Los Angeles. Um, you, were, you were in Los Angeles mm-hmm. for Fuller Theological Seminary. Is that correct? Is that why you went out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I moved okay. out to I moved out west for Fuller. Yeah, okay. So you moved out west for Fuller, and this is where like I reconnected with you. Mm-hmm. It was we. My family had moved out to Southern California. I think probably after you moved out there, and oh, really? when the when the streaming app Periscope came out is where we sort of reconnected. <laughs> yeah, and I remember. And I don't think I've ever told you this before. I remember watching one of your Periscope broadcasts where you had a racist encounter with someone that I, I, I maybe I jumped on the, the broadcast late. It seemed to me like it was a homeless person outside of a movie theater. I don't know, but it was like there was some interaction you had. And I remember you talking about it being racist. And at the time, I was still very... Like, no, everybody's good. Racism's a thing of the past. I mm-hmm. experienced a little bit of racism here and there, but it's all under the cross. That was kind of how I was living. So I was, I, I remember being like, man, I think Andre's tripping right now. Like he's out here, in, <laughs> right, in yeah. Los, you know, calling file and everything. Um, what was, what was the, the Fuller Theological Seminary experience like as you are coming from New York and you've been a, awakened to um, some of the things that you felt and you've had these things named and now you have a deeper understanding of how race works in America and you're, mm-hmm. you're going deeper into your faith and into exploring theology. What was that process like? Yeah, well, I mean, I will say that like just because I was noticing some things and now I had some language for systemic racism didn't mean that I really understood how, how broad, how pervasive how deeply entrenched that system was. And I didn't, you know, I still would have, I still underestimated how serious that problem was. So, 
I mean, what happened when that Periscope day was it was something overt, right? Like, I don't remember what happened, but somebody yelled something at us about like being ugly black people, me and my girlfriend or something, walking down the street in Pasadena. <laughs> it was something like that. I don't remember. It was something dumb like that, though. Like, you know, you, you stupid darkies or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> something, something crazy. Yeah, so something dumb, you know, and you know, for for me, like being able to vent about stuff like that was just, you know, it was just something something I was venting about. Yeah. But I still didn't realize that I still couldn't have told you that, you know, black people are five times more likely to be brutalized by the police. Mm. I couldn't have told you about the 2014 study, you know, that showed that just like you said earlier, you know, name if I that all these businesses were sent sent the same resume, you know, but the the only thing that was different was the names. Some names mm. sounded more, more like common African American names and others sounded like more common white American names. And the ones that sounded like white American names were chosen over those. I didn't know all that stuff. Wow. So I still, even though I could understand the or I knew the verbiage of systemic racism and I knew that what happened to me were not just isolated events. Yeah. I still there was still a lot I didn't know. And um I actually I talk about this as the time when I when I was also white, you know? Mm. And um because like James Baldwin says, you know, whiteness is not about skin color that that being white is an attitude, right? right? It's a mindset. It's a way of being in the world and perceiving the world and and interacting with it. So I was still pretty white at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I was a little less white than I was when I moved to New York. Right. Well, and I think, and I was pretty white when I saw your Periscope. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is that I remember when I was around a lot of white people in the South and allow, around a lot of white people in other spaces that I worked in, because I worked in a lot of predominantly white evangelical spaces. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing people say things like, Corey is the whitest black person I know. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really offended at that, being like, you shouldn't say that about someone who's black. But now in hindsight, as much as that could be considered a microaggression, it is a true one of me at the time because I was white. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always a little bit of truth in jest, they say, right? And sometimes that right. happens to be the case. And like I was saying, this ties back to what I was talking about. It's just growing up in the South, which is just true about being in America, I think, um, is that um, we respond to negative and positive reinforcement. And yeah. in a white society, when you express the same values as white people, when you prioritize their priorities, when you stay within their bounds, when you make sure that you don't say and do things that white people find offensive, um, they reward you, you know, and you are rewarded on several different levels. You know, if you can be the white black guy, you can excel in different uh, fields of business and, and you can have different levels of professional Develop, not that you can't if you be your best black self. I'm just saying that these things are also likely, right? Like, you know, right. you, you are rewarded for doing that. And sometimes you, if you can be the token black guy, you know, you'll get people to laugh at your jokes and you get to represent black people for everyone, you know? Um, yep. 
as long as it stays at a certain level of palatability and all that kind of stuff, there are certain rewards. And when you transgress those racial boundaries, there are consequences where white people will call you names or they'll cut off contact with you or you might get fired for your job or whatnot. And so it's positive and negative reinforcement. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so, you know, yeah, I mean, people, we that is kind of a joke that sometimes people say or sometimes we talk about people being an Oreo, being black on the outside and white on the inside. But it actually is very... It's, it's a reality that many of us actually do live into. And at the end of the day, it's really, it's kind of the ideal situation for a white supremacist state, right? Is that, that all people would be white, even black and brown people. And oh, yeah. I think that a lot of white people talk and think as though just because you have melanin, a higher melanin content, that you're somehow insulated from thinking along with the dominant culture. But that's just not the truth. You are trained from the time you are a child to think and behave like a white person. Absolutely. Or at least according to white culture, at least according to white rules. Right. And that's why whenever we see these videos shared of a Candace Owens or the young guy who was at the reparations hearing, that was mm-hmm. saying, I don't want reparations because it makes me a victim. Mm-hmm. That it's almost like you'll see some white folks who are entrenched in their own racist ideologies wanting to march out these, this black body to, to say what they want us to hear. And it's like, we can't say anything about it because this person is black. It's like right. when somebody in church used to say, well, God told me. Well, once someone pulled out the God told me card, it's like, <laughs> right. what, what are we still talking about? Go do what you're going to do. So it's like, <laughs> here, here's one of your own brothers or sisters who agrees with me. So now, therefore, it's not just a white idea. It's also a black idea. But what we're talking about now, and I love this, and I love bringing this up, the idea of the construct of whiteness is that you have not brought somebody black with a different opinion than me, you brought another white person who just happens to have dark skin. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that there have been black people who participate in white supremacy and anti-blackness for as long as there has been, you know, a white supremacy to participate in. Right. You go all the way back to the 1600s and you'll find Black people writing about Africa, talking about their savages and there's no history there and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's crazy. And, you know, that that's the same thing up until today. And so, like, what you describe, like, the interaction between you and I, or at least you, the way that you related to me on Periscope that day and where I was, too, was that, you know, yeah, like, we are still kind of operating within that framework. And I had a long way to go. So there was... Uh, but I had a rude awakening at in during. Seminary. Okay, so yeah, th- so in seminary, that's what I wanted to get to. So there's a couple things I wanted to get to that you've sort of brought us to naturally, which I think is great. This is awesome. Is the the sort of what is the Damascus Road type experience for you, and how did your faith start to interact with the justice that was stirring in you? as you were at Fuller. Right. So, so again, like 
Okay, let me just, I'll start at Fuller and then I'll, I have to tie, we'll tie some okay. things together. So when, when Dylan Roof walked into Mother Emmanuel Church in South Carolina Jesus. and shot all those people, I said, I have to do something. Mm. I didn't know what I could do or should do, but I knew that I, I knew that something needed to happen and I needed to be a part of it. And so I thought, well, I have music. So maybe if I write some songs and stuff like this, I can get through to some people. Um, and I did, I did release a song called America. I think it was, well, I started, I wrote it and I started singing around that time. So when I released it was much later, but I wrote a song called America and I put that out and I had a few other songs I started writing and I started singing and stuff. But the way that I was going about trying to do that just was not connecting, you know? Like I tell people, the first thing I started doing was making music and it just apparently was not very good music because <laughs> nobody really cared. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, but that was one thing where I was just like, it was the pain of it. Like, I'm just tired of seeing stuff like this. Um, but then the following year, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were both killed mm -hmm. by the police. Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and um, Philando Castile in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And Within 24 hours of each other. The back to back. Yeah, it was back to back. It was July 5th and July 6th. And the fact that the fact that it was um, Independence Week, you know, wow. it was like, <laughs> I, it was just like, it's just, it's just too much. Like, this is, I was really, really angry at that point and just like, you know what, I'm tired of this. And I made some commitments to myself that day. I committed first off, one, that I would invest my body in the struggle for racial justice in some way. And I didn't know how, but I remember saying how I'm going to put my body into this fight. The second was that I would no longer let the news cycle determine when I talked about racism, mm. that I would talk about it as often as possible. That's and big. third, third, that I would learn everything that I could about what people are talking about when they talk about systemic racism. And um, those those three commitments I made that day changed my life. You know, I think forever. I don't think that I'll ever stop doing this. And what I said when I said that I, I needed to tie some things together, is what I'm talking about. Where I said, you know, I always thought I never saw that I never saw a discrepancy between justice and faith. Mm -hmm. Even when I would preach in New York when I was there, you know, I became. Uh, basically associate pastor at this church there while I was there. And when I would preach, I remember I would talk about, you know, the prophets and what they were, what the prophets were preaching against. And a lot of times the prophets were preaching against idolatry, but it wasn't just idolatry. It was the fact that the culture of idolatry also bred injustice or that they were yeah. correlated in some way. You know, can't say which one is first or second, but that they were, they were connected, and that was the prophet's issue, is that they were unfaithful to God and unloving toward their neighbor. So, so they were all, it was always there, but 
it wasn't central to my faith. And a part of that has to do with growing up in the South, going to an Assemblies of God college where, you know, we I learned about a lot of people in systematic theology classes. But you remember that part in The Lion King where Mufasa and Simba are up at the top of Pride Rock and and Mufasa goes, everything the light touches is our kingdom. And Simba's like, okay, well, what about that shadowy part over there? And <laughs> my, my theology professors were like, that's liberation theology. You must never go there. That's <laughs> black liberation theology. <laughs> Womanist theology. Oh, you know, feminist theology. You must never go over there. Not there. You must never, you must never go over there. Oh, my God. And that was... That was how I learned theology. And so in this moment, though, when um, this was happening in 2016, in the wake of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile's death, what eventually happened in that process was it pulled justice to the center of my Christian faith. Mm. And it had to, because when I first started speaking up, I had a lot more faith in white people and... I just started going live on Facebook and talking about my own experiences of racial profiling, racial injustice. And I started reading everything that I could. I started speaking to different people who had been studying this for much longer than I had. Um, that, that documentary 13th that came out that Ava DuVernay directed, I used to watch that documentary every single day. I, I watched it like some people say you're supposed to read your Bible. I watched it every day so that I could have the facts of mass incarceration on ice. Like I'd had them at, you know, at the tip of, at the front of my forehead, I'm uh, sorry, the front of my brain so that I could, you know, say, well, I know that there are 2.3 million people incarcerated in our country right now and so, so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and when I first started speaking up, you know, there were some people that were, you know, amen, Andre, great, you know, and there were there wasn't a whole lot of pushback at first, you know, and I was very gracious and very patient and tried to, you know, affirm where people were and walk them through, you know, step by step. And then I started kind of hitting a wall in a couple of ways. One, I realized that um, when you're talking about white supremacy, Oftentimes, white people don't get upset because of the way that you say it. Even even those that say that you're being rude or mm-hmm. you're, you know, you know, you're angry or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about the content. Absolutely. And so I I realized that it really didn't matter if I was nice or not. That when I was nice, people would just treat the conversation as though we both have valid opinions to place on the table, and they dismiss what I had to say. And you know go about their married mm-hmm. business. And if I were emphatic and decisive and incisive about what I'd said, if I said, listen, it's black or white, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And I'll give you a hint. You're the wrong one. <laughs> then they just be upset when they walk away, you know, <laughs> but either way they were going to walk away, you know, like the ones that, w- the ones that would walk away are going to walk away. Now that, my friends, is what you call a cliffhanger. 
That was part one of my conversation with Andre, and I'm going to share part two with you next week. But in the meantime, you can follow Andre on all of his social media platforms, as well as following us on all of our social media platforms. The details and information for you to do that is in the show notes. As always, I want to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song is called Sorry. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, to rate and review it. Thank you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.